I think this is one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to write. As I sat with the sacred significance of this day, knowing that I would see you all after a year and a half of pandemic with all of its challenges, grief, loss, knowing that in the midst of that pandemic, we had made future-altering decisions, difficult, painful decisions, decisions that have brought us to this moment in which we both grieve our loss and celebrate this new beginning, in which we say goodbye to a denomination that has been our home for 173 years and become embraced by a new denomination. How do I find words that even begin to honor what this moment means? The denomination that we have been a part of for 173 years has harmed us. Denying that or downplaying it would only do more harm to the LGBTQ community, to their friends, allies, family members, and to the denomination that needs to own, confess, and repent of its sin. But that same denomination has given us many gifts for which we are deeply grateful. For 173 years, gave us an identity, a home, partners in ministry to care for the sick, to care for those impacted by natural disasters, to care for the homeless, to welcome immigrants and refugees. It gave us incredibly gifted clergy who served this congregation well for all those years. All of these beloved hymns have been the gift of this denomination to us. It has given us a theology rooted deeply in grace, in the pursuit of justice for all of God's children. It's that theology that actually led us to this moment. It's given us friends, those with whom we have shared struggles and joys and victories on this journey of faith. It has given us companions in the work of advocacy for those who are oppressed in the world and in the church, for Black Lives Matter, for Asian Americans, for the Latino, Latina community, for immigrants, for refugees, for the homeless and the poor, for the LGBTQ community. Together, we have stood and we are deeply grateful for all of those things and all of those relationships that have actually shaped us and brought us to this moment. And so we find ourselves in a place needing to extend forgiveness for the harm, but also celebrate and honor with gratitude all that has been a part of our shared story that we take with us as God calls us into a new place, knowing that we cannot stay together, that we have to part from one another so that we can heal, 
so that the harm can stop and so that we can reach the community that God has called us to reach, a community we cannot reach if we stay together. We also have to confess our own sin, that we have failed in this relationship too, that we have not been advocates for everyone as fully as God calls us to be, that racism still continues in God's church. And if we look around, we have to confess that we at Bering have not yet learned to be as inclusive of other marginalized groups as we are of the LGBTQ community. And so we have work to do because racism and other forms of oppression of whole groups of people still exist here and in God's church. And so we go extending forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, and expressing gratitude for all that we've been given. So how, in this place of brokenness, in this place of loss, in this place of acknowledging that God's church is indeed broken, do we move into God's future in a way that is life-giving and healing for all of us? Let's pray. God, we offer this day to you in all that it is, knowing that you are a God who brings good out of evil, who can heal what is broken and make it whole, who can bring beauty out of ashes, who has a vision for your kingdom that is far greater than any of us individually hold. And that one day, you will gather all of us around your table and we will see one another as you do. As members of one family, members of one body, in need of each and every one of us together. And so God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would anoint this moment as sacred ground, that it would serve as a marker, sending us all into your future, seeking earnestly to become who you've called us to be, all of us, so that the gospel can go forth, so that everyone who needs to know they have a place at this table can come home to your love, to our welcome to your grace and forgiveness. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson is from the prophet Isaiah, who was speaking to a community much like the one we find ourselves in, a broken community, a community that was pitting itself against each other, that had put in rules and laws about who was in and who was out, who was more worthy and who was less worthy, and forgotten that God's grace is what defines us. God's grace is what includes all of us and envelops all of us. It is our Wesleyan theology. And so he reminds the community that God's invitation is come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. Without money, without price, without any limitation, you are invited. Augustine talked about this thirst as a restlessness 
that we remain restless until we find our home in God, till we know ourselves seen and loved by God, because only then can we risk knowing and seeing and loving ourselves and extending that same love and welcome and acceptance and seeing and knowing to others. Isaiah reminds the community that they've lost sight of God's grace, of God's welcome, of God's all-inclusive love, and they too have begun to set up levels of worthiness. They are spending their money for what is not bread, their wages for what will not satisfy, even as we, God's church, have done and are doing. If you look around at the church today, not just the Methodist denomination, but most institutional churches, you'll find that we have set up levels of acceptance. Out of one side of our mouths, we speak grace and welcome to all, but in practice, you have more privilege if you are white, if you are male, if you are straight, if you are a citizen, if you come from a certain economic and financial strata social strata, if you have a certain level of education, if you come from a family that is one female mother, one male father, two children and a dog, you're in. The rest are to be questioned. If you have certain professions, you have more privileges. You have the right to a living wage. You have the right to health care that you can afford. You have the right to be, to be able to vote without harassment. That remains embodied in the church of God, and it is sin. And so even this morning, as we point to the sin of the church against the LGBTQ community, we also have to point to our participation in the ongoing sins of racism, privilege, and exclusion that have become not only a part of our nation and the world, but a part of God's church. And we have to acknowledge our brokenness, our inability to fix it. (laughs) As we talked about last week, our undoneness. And while that feels bad, it's probably the best place we can start. Because when we finally acknowledge our inability to fix all this, we make room for the Spirit of God to come in and do something new. So how do we become like the prophet Isaiah calls Israel and us to become people through whom the word of God can go forth with power to accomplish God's purposes, not our purposes of self-righteousness and self-protection and othering of people. How do we become a light to the nations? How do we gather all the nations so that together we leap for joy and the hills clap and the trees sing and all the wonderful things that signify that everyone has found their way home? This morning, we can start with gratitude and forgiveness. That leads us to our epistle. Our epistle for this morning is the earliest Christian text we have in the New Testament. It's the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And to this fledgling church, the Apostle Paul says, Hold in high esteem those with whom you've labored in the faith, Support the weak, encourage the faint-hearted, and be patient with one another, and seek the good of all, 
Yes, even those people. We are called to seek their good. Even those who have harmed us. Even those we wrongly judge and harm. God calls us to seek their good. And most of all, to give thanks in all things. Not because all things are good. There is evil. And Paul tells us, do not return evil for evil. But we can give thanks because in all things, both the evil and the good, God is with us. God is here in the midst of all this mess. And God can be trusted with us and with the I Methodist Church. And so this morning, we say thank you. We say thank you for all that we've been given. I say thank you for the privilege of having worked with each of you for the sake of the gospel. We say thank you for God's forgiveness for all of us. And that brings us to our gospel. It's a familiar text. It's probably too familiar. You know, we just kind of, oh yeah, yeah, we're supposed to forgive everybody. And Peter blesses heart. I love him because he makes the mistake of asking questions that it, if we just wouldn't ask them, then we wouldn't be held accountable. And so Peter says, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive a sibling who has wronged me? Now, we're not talking about bumping into somebody by accident. Oh, oh I'm sorry. We're talking about real harm here. We're talking about crucifixion level harm. How many times must I forgive? Peter graciously, in my book, offers seven times. Because I don't know about you, but if we're honest, my response to that, when I think about the people who have hurt me, are you kidding me? I think one time is too many. Really? Now, Peter says seven, okay. I think that's more than generous. But Jesus isn't buying it. And he says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. And in saying that, he's telling us, you've made a mistake in your counting. We don't count. When you forgive, God places it as far as the east is from the west. There is no counting. We cannot come to the end of forgiving. Really? Now, if I was Peter, my response would have been, really? Are you kidding me? Do you know what they did to us? And you're going to tell me to forgive them? Not only that, they don't think there's anything that needs forgiven. They're not even sorry. And you know what else? They're doing it in your name. And you still want me to forgive them? Yeah. God commands us to forgive. And Jesus will embody what he is talking about because in just a little while, those who do so in the name of God, believing they are doing the right thing, are going to nail Jesus to a cross. And from that cross, with all of his heart, Jesus will say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And so they didn't. And so often, we don't, nor do those who harm us. And so God commands us to forgive. That ought to settle it right there. It's an act of obedience, a choice. But there's more. 
We pray it every Sunday, and we're going to pray it here in a few minutes. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You really want to go there? Are we really going to be okay with God meeting out forgiveness the way that we do? Because if we are, we're in big trouble. But you see, Scripture tells us, and we know in our hearts, that God forgave us while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of the cross of Christ. God forgave me. God forgave you. God forgave us. God forgave God's church. And because we have been forgiven freely, God calls us to extend the same forgiveness to others. Is it hard? Yes. And only by the grace of God. But we have to choose to forgive. If you haven't seen the uh, new movie that came out uh, this year during the pandemic called The Mauritanian stars Jodie Foster. You should watch it. It's really good. It's a true story of, let me see if I can get his name right, Mohamedou Old Slahi. After the 9-11 attacks, you know, the U.S. government gathered up all kinds of people based on mere suspicion and imprisoned them in Guantanamo Bay without charging them. Mohamedou was held for 14 years never charged with a crime. But for the first eight years, he was brutally and relentlessly tortured day and night in an attempt to extract a confession from him for something he did not do. Finally, after eight years, a civil rights attorney in the United States took up his case and managed for him to have a hearing in front of a federal judge, virtually from his prison cell in Guantanamo. And here is what Mohamedou said to the judge and all those who were listening that day. My captors cannot forgive me for something I have never done. But I am trying to forgive what they have done to me. I want to forgive because that is what Allah, my God, wants and requires of me. For that reason, I do not hold a grunt, grudge against those who abused me. In Arabic, the word for forgive and the word for free are the same word. This is how, even here in this prison cell, I can be free. Whatever you decide, regarding my fate, because I choose to forgive them and you. May God forgive us, and may God be with us. Indeed, may God forgive us, and may God be with us, so that as we step into this new chapter in our future, we do so freely, freeing those who have harmed us, from their sin, and freeing us from that sin as well. Freeing us from the sin we have committed and those we have committed sins against so that God can do something new, a fresh start, an opportunity to birth the very kingdom of God, stepping toward the vision that is God's table 
where each and every single one of us have a seat of dignity and honor and worth in all of our identity, created in the image of God as God's beloved children. Thanks be to God. Amen.